real estate is an asset that is not straightforward to invest in. Real estate can generate excellent returns for investors, but can require much more time and expertise than stocks. Cadre is a company that allows users to invest in real estate more easily and intelligently. Cadre provides users with lots of data about potential investments and enables investments in those opportunities within the Cadre platform. Leonard Movzazian is the head of engineering at Cadre and joins the show to talk about the problems being solved by the company in terms of product development, infrastructure engineering, hiring, and data science. To build a platform for evaluating real estate investments, Cadre ingests and merges lots of data sets, some of which are public and some of which are private. This gives investors a detailed picture of the value of these real estate investments. And the vision for Cadre is much bigger. It's to be able to allow investors to invest in unusual assets, assets that are not simple to invest in today. Before we get started, I want to mention that we have another podcast that we're working on, Fintech Daily. This is a new podcast from the Software Engineering Daily team. We're covering payments and cryptocurrencies and trading and the intersection of finance and technology. And we're looking for volunteer hosts for Fintech Daily. If you're interested in working with us to conduct interviews, send an email to host at fintechdaily.co. You can find the podcast on iTunes or Google or everywhere else. And if you're interested in hosting, don't hesitate to reach out. We are very much in the early days of Fintech Daily. We're fleshing out the content strategy. And if you are interested and you're well-qualified and you want to be part of the burgeoning Fintech Daily community, then send an email to host at fintechdaily.co. Leonid Movsevsian, you are the head of engineering at Cadre. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Cadre is a company that enables investment in alternative assets. One example is real estate investment. That's what Cadre is focused on right now. And we will ease into a conversation about what Cadre does, and then we can get into some engineering aspects. Real estate investment is a very large area. Describe the kinds of investments that Cadre is focused on. Yeah, we are focusing primarily and at this point only on commercial real estate investment, which is basically an opportunity for individuals to invest and to buy a share in a commercial real estate building, such as office building or a multifamily or a hotel. And this is an investment platform. So what are the types of investors that Cadre is catering to? Yeah, so we're focusing on individual investors as opposed to the traditional old school private equity firms that are focusing primarily on institutions such as pension funds or big family offices. We focus on individual investors, the folks with a substantially uh, lower net worth who would typically not be able to work with one of these big private equity firms. Unfortunately, due to regulations that we need to be compliant with, right now we only can work with accredited investors and beyond, which means that as an individual, you have to have, uh, I think the rule is $200,000 of annual income for two years in a row, or more than $1 million in liquid investable assets. 
to become a member of the platform. One way to think about Cadre is as a two-sided marketplace between investors who want to put money into real estate and operators who manage real estate. I realize that's not a perfect description, but to some degree it is a platform and you get to operate this platform. Give an overview of what you're trying to build into this platform. So we are trying, look, first and foremost, our goal, our sort of high-level mission is to improve people's financial futures. So the paramount of our platform is giving people access to really good investment opportunities. These investment opportunities are being vetted by our internal team. And right now, the process is semi-manual with a large emphasis on manual. And obviously, as a tech company, we want to remove the manual part as much as we can and make it as automated as it's possible to enable the larger scale, to lower the minimums, and to invite more folks to the platform, give them opportunity to invest. This is a common strategy for technology companies to look at something that is difficult to automate completely, but you start off with perhaps a good interface that makes it easier to get some transactions flowing through the system. And then you get some number of transactions and you're handling them manually under the surface to some degree. And over time, you figure out what are the areas of a manual process that you can automate more and more. And you you gradually automate it more and more. And that allows you to build a moat can you give an overview for this strategy of, of what are the things that are manual today and what are you able to start automating? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're exactly right. So when we started you know, about four years ago, there were no automation for any of these processes in place. So there was a lot of manual paperwork in terms of onboarding investors to the platform, doing all the necessary checks that regulators require us to do performing all the transactions completely offline, you know, sending people uh, PDFs to print and sign and scan and send us back, you know, things like that. And slowly but surely, we started automating different pieces. So like things like signing documents online, things like completing all the necessary checks online. And right now, most of the user-related flow on uh, our platform is automated. We have a fair amount of manual operations that still are being performed, but for a majority of customers, we were able to generalize and automate the flows. And right now, we're focusing on the other side of a marketplace, which is substantially harder, I want to say, to automate, because we need to be able to get all the deal information about various deals that are coming into the platform and make a decision whether we think this deal is good or we think it's going to be not as great as uh, a sponsor, an operator who sells this deal tells us it's going to be. So that, that part right now is mostly manual and we're looking for various ways to bring data that will help us to make this decision in an automatic fashion. If listeners are wanting to know more about this strategy of starting something that is difficult to automate, but presenting a, a shell around it that lets it be automated, I recommend, we, there's an episode we did about a company called Checker, which is like a, an API for, for checking 
if people are or checking people's employment history and doing background checks on them and it's just like something that is really hard to build as an API because a background check is has has a lot of manual processes but they did it and they built an amazing business out of it and i think as developers this is this is a bright future because you know over time these will be APIs that will be able to leverage whether they're automated on the back end or not there'll be things that we could build on top of yeah exactly so speaking about cadre you want to build this investment platform and a lot of making smarter investments in alternative assets such as real estate is about getting information. How does information about real estate investments typically get aggregated and where are people finding it? Where are they accessing information about real estate? Mm-hmm. Well, there are three ways to gather this information for us as, a, as an investment platform. The first way is the most obvious. There is a lot of public sources of information that you can scrape in certain ways, which we do regularly. It's uh, things like census publications and uh, median income information that uh, government uh, agencies are publishing. There are also things that we can scrape legally according to terms of service of various applications online. So this is the first big bucket, the publicly available information. Then the second big bucket is there is a plenty of vendors in this market who work closely with a lot of operators and they aggregate information and then sell it. And we have partnership with some of them, partnerships with some of them. So we buy their information and incorporate it into our platform. And the third way is to capture the data on our own assets that we already have on the platform and make informative decisions based on this information. The world of real estate is not very well developed in terms of technology. There are some burgeoning technologies that are being used, but as far as I understand, the technology is not improving really rapidly. I remember when I was in high school, my mom was a real estate agent, and she used something called MLS, which is the Multiple Listing Service. It just felt like some some dated technology. Describe the technology that is used in the world of real estate today. There is plenty of startups who are trying. You're exactly right, by the way. It's a pretty ancient uh, field. And there is a lot of startups who are trying to disrupt this world and trying to build the software to solve these issues because a lot of this old school, especially in commercial real estate field, obviously, a lot of this old school companies operate in you know, Excel models that were created decades ago, a lot of, you know, email back and forth kind of thing. And obviously, we're trying to be on the edge of technology. But at the same time, you have to accept the fact that certain partners are just using the super old obsolete formats that we have to learn how to understand and exchange in. So that's that's kind of another part of the interesting engineering challenge for us, how to be, you know, very cutting-edge technology, but at the same time be able to work with this older formats of information. Let's say I'm an investor that wants to put money into real estate. So I make an account on Cadre, and am I just looking at all of these different investments and I can just put money into them however I want to, and Cadre gives me a bunch of data on these different investments? Can you describe the experience of the investor who is logging into Cadre and using it? Yeah, so you basically can describe the two major ways how individual can invest. 
The first way is to invest through what we call deal-by-deal engagement, where exactly as you described, you get access to the platform, you log in, and you see multiple investment opportunities, and you can click in every single one of them and get information about our model, about performance of this asset, about our hypotheses on the macro macro, uh, economics of the region, of the specific asset type in the region, and so on and so forth. We have a very informative video where you can see the asset, you know, filmed by our crew and also hear about all the assumptions that we have. And you can see the schedule that we plan, like what sort of renovation we're planning to do with the asset and so on and so forth. So that's the one type of investment that you can do, and you can put your money in a specific deal. Or alternatively, you can say, I want to build a commercial real estate portfolio, and here is my commitment of a certain amount of dollars, and we will distribute your investment into multiple assets that are coming into our platform so you can have a diversification within commercial real estate alternative. So you got a few products. You got the product where you can find deals and look at those deals and dive deep into them and build your own little portfolio of real estate investments. Or you've got something that's a little bit more like a robo-advisor where you just put some money in and it's finding good real estate investments, and maybe those investments fit some criteria that, that helps with your robo-advisory balancing. And then that, that requires maybe a little less effort, but then you'll get a little less specificity out of your real estate investment. Exactly. The way we like to think about it is that if you are comfortable making your own investment decisions, the first product is probably better suited for you. But if you are, say, not that informed in terms of commercial real estate or alternative investment just in general, and you just want to, like, say, you are heavily in tech stocks in your portfolio and you want to diversify, but you don't want to get a PhD in commercial real estate, then you can choose a managed portfolio. And then on the other side of the marketplace, you have these uh, real estate owners or operators and they are putting up opportunities for the investors? Is that, is that how it works? Right now, we're actually only putting the investment opportunities that Cadre underwrites ourselves. So we work with these operators who bring the deals to us, and then we do underwriting ourselves, and then decide whether or not we're going to put the uh, asset to the platform. Very cool. So that simplifies the equation a little bit since you're doing the underwriting and you don't have a bunch of back and forth with the other side of the marketplace. It's more like a a one-sided marketplace. It could become a two-sided marketplace eventually. Mm -hmm. Yes. All right. Well, let's get into the technology. Give me an overview of the Cadre stack as it stands today. So we are firm believers in engineering for the sake of the product and not for the sake of engineering. So I want to say we're relatively simple in terms of our stack. We are using a monolith Python application because it works at our scale and our size. We are heavily on React.js on on the front end, and we are exclusively in AWS. Uh, We don't host any of our own infrastructure. Can you tell me some of the AWS managed services that you're using? Of course, yeah. We're uh, obviously relying on their load balancer and our fleet is the uh, Elastic uh, servers, AWS uh, in EC2. And we're also relying on their S3 and our database installation is also an RDS database. 
On the other side of our AWS infrastructure, we are heavily using things like Redshift for our data efforts and ETLing. But yeah, that's pretty much what we have in place, yeah. I like it. I like it because it's uh, it's simple and pragmatic. And like earlier shows that I did, I, I would say maybe like two years ago, I was always excited when somebody was talking about a very complicated architecture. We've got containerized this and that. And we've got these, you know, continuous delivery, microservices, complicated architecture. And over time, you know, you start to realize that there are some companies where it makes more sense to have a very simple architecture, particularly a company like yours, where you've got a lot of complexity on the product design and the marketplace development side of things, it makes a lot more sense to keep things very, very simple in the in the way that the product stands today. Yeah, exactly. We have, uh, so for us as a product-oriented company, the biggest value that we need to extract from our infrastructure is ability to ship safe and fast. So we have to be able, if we need to pivot technologically and you know, implement certain features or say regulator comes to us and they want us to do certain things online, we have to move fast. We have to iterate fast. So velocity for us is essential. But at the same time, we try to keep infrastructure as simple as possible so the deployments are safe and we don't have to think about you know, billion moving parts in our infrastructure. What about data? What's the volume of data that you're dealing with like? Is it is it so big that you have to have a complicated data platform? I don't want to say it's big, but it's very different. So like the data sources that we have are extremely diverse. So it's not complicated in terms of the scale, but rather in terms of the ability to plug in and out different data sources. That's where we put a lot of our engineering thought on how to make it as pluggable as possible. And also the biggest problem that we have, the challenge that we have is the fact that the data is not necessarily well normalized or cleaned. So we have to build a lot of engineering and machinery around that. And what are some of those data sets when you're talking about the diversity of the data sets and the range of different data formats and types uh, to give me a, a sample of some of the different data types. So some of them could be just plain text file that one of the governmental agencies put on their website every year. And the other can be uh, a binary format of like a proprietary binary format by one of our vendors that we need to get a spec for and implement the parser on our side. Wait, proprietary data format? So like there's real estate data companies that have like a you know, I don't know, dot, dot real estate file well, or something? Something like that. It would be almost like the Excel file, but slightly different. So <laughs> why is that? Is that like, do you need some kind of license to be able to even open those kinds of files? I think it's just the things have been done this way for decades. And there is no real, like the, the companies that work in this field, they don't really see the value in unification. So I think that's the main reason why there is no unified formats for data. Do you have a lot of overlap in in the the different data sets? Like, you know, do you have, for example, some TSV file that comes from from one data data company, and it's it gives you this you know information about a particular property, and then you get some you know .dot real estate file 
from some other proprietary data set and it's about the same address and you have to merge those two data sets about the same piece of property and you have to you know keep them in sync is that an example of a kind of data problem you have yes and we also need to understand which of them is more trustworthy because sometimes information would be vastly different so that's where our sort of data science initiative comes in we're trying to clean the data we're trying to unify the data normalize it and make sure that we can represent it in a very clean format to our investment team and we can start educating our own machinery on like decisions around the returns that the building can generate or cash flow of the building based based on uh, the macroeconomics of the region and the investment uh, and the asset performance historically and things like that this is like when the the data scientist has the the diagram that's like what people think I do versus what I actually do. And what people think I do is like developing artificial intelligence to take over the world. And what I'm actually doing is data cleaning and finding like which data set is more trustworthy. Yep. <laughs> now, is that the majority of the challenges around building your quote unquote data platform is, is doing I hate the term data cleaning because it makes it sound unglamorous or, or un, you know, not fun or not uh, educational. But data cleaning is like a huge uh, source of, of problems in, in software engineering. Well, data cleaning is just the first step because when you have the clean data, you need to start being able to make automated decisions on the investment. And that's where like the next phase and the next interesting challenge for data science comes in. Right, okay. So what's an example once you have the data clean, let's say you're you have decided who is the more trustworthy source of any given conflict that could arise between two different data sets and you have this end result of properties with really good data around them. How do you approach the process of building models and surfacing insights that classify those properties as being good investments. The secret sauce, exact secret sauce of the platform is in this. So right now, it's just our investment team that has, you know, combined decades of experience and have seen uh, various cycles in economics and various types of assets and worked with various types of partners uh, in terms of the operating the building and managing the building and so on and so forth. So our goal as a tech platform is to actually codify this experience and codify this knowledge. So as long as the data is clean and trustworthy, we should be able to make the same level of decisions, but automatically. So in the in the last five or six years, there has been the DevOps movement. And the DevOps movement was all about breaking down the silos between developers and operations teams. There are other silos that have been broken down over time and silos that continue to exist today. You have the silo between software engineers and designers. You also have the, the silos between software engineers and data scientists. And you, it seems like you would have a similar silo between people who are savvy real estate investors that maybe you've brought onto the cadre team to help you develop your strategy and then you have to figure out how do you extract their intelligence and put it into data science and machine learning algorithms. Have you developed any any useful communication strategies that you can share about how you extract that knowledge from these investment professionals? 
Yeah, I, it's, a, it's actually a very good question because that was my main concern before joining the company because I was like, okay, so you have all these investment professionals who are highly motivated to keep their jobs and you want to automate them out of their jobs. So it didn't make a lot of sense, right? But the good thing about Cadre is that all the members of our investment team are actually bought into this long-term strategy of automating the processes on both supply and demand side of our marketplace. And they're actually more than willing to help to share their knowledge with our data team and make our automation better. So it's just a matter for us, it was a matter of finding right people who are bought into the long vision and the mission of the company. So once you find those people, what do you have them do? How do they actually convey that useful information to the data scientists? So right now they do almost the same job that they would do in uh, a traditional private equity firm, but with more emphasis of capturing data and build like building and sharing more information about the models that they build with our data team. So we can start implementing the same models, but on the back end of our marketplace, as opposed to an Excel spreadsheet. Right. So that's that's the, the process. We have uh, weekly syncs between our investment team and the data team specifically because that's the biggest overlap. They, there is a lot of knowledge transfer going back and forth. Obviously, they had to step up a little bit in terms of their understanding of technology and capabilities of technology. Uh, so it's been a process on both sides. But, you know, we are getting to the place of balance where there is a very good continuous flow of information going either way. That's actually really interesting. It's um, because you can have them make investment decisions for the robo-advisor platform. You can have them basically do the full-stack investing strategy, but then you're almost like a an, you have an AWS kind of thing where you're exposing the same tooling that you would want to build for your in-house investors and giving that to the people who are making the a la carte investments. Yep. Very cool. Can you talk more about the product feedback loop between those two areas of the house and like what's your like what's your system for sort of transmuting product strategy from the robo-advisor platform to the a la carte investment platform? Well, our investment team works very closely with the customers, with the investors on the platforms. So they continuously learn what cadre investor wants from the investment opportunities, what kind of return profile people are looking for, what kind of risk people are willing to take, and also what kind of pain points they have in terms of interaction with the platform. So for example, for managed portfolio, we want to automate as much as possible to the point where you just leave us with the number that you're willing to commit and information about your bank account and everything else is done automatically on our side. And we're continuously getting this feedback loop as well as the understanding of sort of what kind of assets our customers are looking for and what kind of portfolio composition is the best for you know current economics and things like that uh, and the the investors that you have on the team are they using any like off the shelf bi tools or off the shelf stuff and you're like man i wish we had something better to give them but unfortunately 
or or maybe maybe the the BI tools are good enough. Maybe they're using Airtable or they're using uh, Tableau, and that's just good enough. And maybe you can replicate that in your in your product. What, what what kinds of software tools are they using? Yeah, so there are BI tools like off the shelf BI tools that we are using internally, but it's a stepping stone towards the better automation. So we are continuously learning of how their flows are changing our investment team in terms of make their lives continuously better. And then we implement that in our platform. So like certain dashboards that they need, maybe it's faster to build it in the BI tool because you can do it within 20 minutes, but then it's going to take a couple of weeks to implement it. So if you want to experiment with something, it goes to BI tool. And then if you want, if you know exactly what you need or like you already experimented and you learned that this is very useful, we go ahead and implement that in platform. Earlier, you alluded to the emphasis on safety. Safety was something that's really important to your platform. I'd like to know more about why that's important. Is that because you are you handling large financial transactions through the company's software or is there some third party vendor who can like take care of the of the actual purchasing or the I don't know that the transact I can just imagine these are very high dollar transactions that are going somewhere, but how much of that is stuff that you actually have to write code for? Yeah, so we have to write code for a lot of this processing the money processing and money flows that are happening on the platform. But not only that, so as, I, as I've mentioned, we're regulated pretty heavily by FINRA and SEC. And there is a word of the regulation that we need to follow. So there are certain security practices that we have to implement. They're not necessarily the most up-to-date so we also want to, you know, be in spirit of the regulation, not only, you know, follow the word of regulation. So we're actually going extra, you know, extra mile to, to make it even more secure and better. We work with external security consultants in terms of what kind of, you know, things that we need to implement on our platform, what kind of practices we need to have on our platform that go way beyond the typical expectations of the regulator. But as you mentioned, we are moving around a substantial amounts of money from people accounts and they trust us with their finance and we cannot you know, compromise their trust. And that's why for us, the most important thing is trustworthiness of the platform. People have to be uh, 100% certain that their money is handled with the highest rigor of uh, security. What about fraud and risk of some kind of problematic transactions happening on the platform? Is that something you have to build checks and, and balances and do you have like a fraud and risk team or anything? Yes, this is a big part of our know your customer process, because again, as part of regulation, we have to run the checks on the people who are investors on the platform. So we know exactly where their money comes from. It doesn't come from any illegal activities and things like that. So that's a big part of, uh, of our process. Right now, it is partially on our engineering team and partially on our legal team to, to run these checks where slowly sort of automating uh, the processes to the point where, you know, for 99% of the customers, it can be fully automated, but it is a big part of onboarding flow for us. So the two products, the Cadre Secondary Market, which is the platform for buying and selling individual investments, and the Cadre Managed Portfolio, 
the automatic commercial real estate investing tool. What's your strategy for dividing up resources between these two products? Because early early companies off, and I think Cadre is not super early. I mean, it's not like you just got started yesterday, but it's it's very hard to to introduce the second product to a company. So, what have you learned about developing a second product? Secondary marketplace for us is a very exciting product just because it's something that has never been implemented online. There is not, to my knowledge at least, uh, alternative investment platforms who are performing the secondary transactions online. So for us, it was always in the back of our head that we have, in order to have a marketplace, and this is the ultimate goal of ours, to build this marketplace where individuals can invest in alternative assets, we had to implement the secondary marketplace. And as it typically happens, you just allocate a certain part of your team to do this sort of moonshot kind of initiative within. And that was exactly the process with secondary marketplace because we had a very cross-functional team of individuals. It was all the way from like the business owner all the way to the engineers and designers who were working on the experience for our customers to work solely on this project. And we allocated a certain amount of time of these individuals to make it happen. But it, it was a very big challenge for us to, to understand how much resources we need to put into it and how much of the process we need to automate versus keep manual. It's, it's a very fine balance. <laughs> I'd like to go a little bit deeper into the data side of things. So we touched a little bit on the data cleaning process. Let's go deeper there, though. So I, I'd like to know more about your process for getting these data sets in the door cleaning them to what degree this is automated if you have any scheduling systems like if you use airflow to detail these data pipelines just tell me a little bit more about your data pipeline yeah so there are two two types of data sources that we work with is like basically if you think in terms of the etl it's push based and pool based so some data comes to our system and then the others we need to scrape and for these we we're using the schedule based systems where we're just scraping the data we're cleaning it up normalizing storing in our uh, data storage and data warehouse rather and then for the push-based, we just have an agreement with certain vendor and we're giving them continuous feedback on the quality because our machinery, when it accepts the data, it runs various checks and normalization. So we can give our feedback to the vendor, make sure that they are doing all the necessary checks on their side before they are giving us this, this data. And then we're trying to continuously evaluate how useful the data source is for our machinery, for our engineering, so we can invest our time and resources accordingly in the data sources that are actually helping us to make better, more informed decisions. Are there any data sets that have surprised you and how valuable they've been? There is a lot of interesting information that you can get from, you know, things like median income, but the most interesting sources are typically the ones that are scrapable online, uh, you know, information about the business activities around the building, information about the demographics uh, within the certain neighborhood uh, helps a lot making this informed decisions. When you say scrape it online, do you mean like from satellite photos or Google Maps or something? What is it? 
basically you can you can work with various sources and some of them have you know hard rate limits some of them don't want to be scraped <laughs> so <laughs> it's another challenge of uh, of getting this information so you got to set up some uh, AWS Lambda functions and kind of uh, mask your IP address to overcome the rate limiting constraints. I don't think it would be uh, compliant with their terms of service. And, <laughs> I, and I we, think that's right. <laughs> and we don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've had, uh, th- there's a, a company called SafeGraph and a guy I know named Oren Hoffman who runs that company. And I've had a, a number of conversations with him about this rise of the data company. And I guess, I, you know, there's data companies that have been around for a long time, but relative to how many data sets are out there that would be very useful there's not like a marketplace for data sets like there's not like the aws of data sets at least that i know of does that seem surprising to you like why are there not more like data repositories i think part of the problem is that all these data vendors uh, like to keep their data close to their hearts because for them it's their you know main means of making money and that's why you have the vast majority of, like, vast variety, rather, of different formats and, you know, different types of data. And it's it's a very interesting question. And it's a very hard problem, I think, to solve, just based on everything I know now about the data, at least in commercial real estate. Hmm. Like, is it, what, what makes it so hard to solve? Just the fact that all these companies are not really incentivized in uh, opening up the information or uh, bringing it to a format where you can just bootstrap this marketplace of data, not at least to my knowledge. How do they build a proprietary edge in this data? Like, how are they, how do these data aggregators, these proprietary data aggregators get proprietary data? Like, what are, what's an example of, of some interesting data company you've heard about? CBRE, for example, is is a big company, and I think that they just captured a ton of their own proprietary information about the about the assets they have. There are some companies. Sorry, CBRE. That, CBR stands for what? Oh, I actually don't know what they stand for, <laughs> but RE is definitely real estate. <laughs> but uh, there are some companies that make partnerships with operators who operate buildings and then gather and capture their information. I guess that's how they bootstrap the, the data sources. How do you figure out which data sources are more trustworthy? Well, there is the backtesting that we perform on our models, and we try to understand what kind of weight uh, certain data sources you know, made in the decision, then understanding whether the information was correct or not. It's a variety of, of ways to do that. You cross-compare the data sources to each other. Uh, and like if two data sources are pointing in one direction and the third is pointing into a completely different direction, that is a good indicator, things like that. How did you develop a backtesting strategy? That's, I mean, that's something that I've heard a, a lot about in like stock trading companies or securities trading companies. But yeah, I know your background is like in product and like Dropbox and stuff. So how did you get a familiarity for backtesting? Well, I actually, I'm not the one who implement that. I've learned my uh, lesson of a manager and I delegate to people who know what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, as I've mentioned, the buildings that we have on the platform, we actually control the information flow about these buildings. So we know exactly how they perform and we can compare it to our models and then backtest it. 
But there are way more uh, competent people at Cadre <laughs> to answer this question than I am. Yeah, so you did used to work at Dropbox in the past. How does the problem set of an investing platform like Cadre, how does that compare to your experience at Dropbox? It is completely different. It's a very, very interesting field uh, that I was not exposed to when I worked at Dropbox. I was always an infrastructure person at Dropbox. I was working on the reliability engineering and data storages. So it didn't really, like it, it wasn't really my area of expertise. But there is a lot of things that you take from working on the reliability engineering, like, for example, doing things manually versus automate or just trustworthiness and uh, safe safeguards on the platform and things like that. That was very easily transformable to to the investment platform. But generally speaking, I guess the, the problems are so much different because Dropbox is this really large scale, large number of transactions. Automation is super important. It's not like a like the Wizard of Oz automation later manual now kind of format. So it's just a the core problems are so different. Yeah, it, it is. And obviously at Cadre we don't have anywhere near the amount of scale and the amount of uh, load that we had at Dropbox. But it's different type of problem. It's a problem of like from engineering standpoint, it's a problem of how to implement things as fast as you can in an incredibly safe manner. And from the business standpoint, it's a completely different problem because Dropbox was operating in a very established you know, market, I want to say. Obviously, they were one of the first storage solutions and one of the greatest, in my opinion. But it was already an area where technology was prominent compared to Cadre, where we're coming into the market that is, you know, old school and technology is not there yet. Isn't it amazing how when Dropbox came out and like the five years, 10 years after it came out, people were continually like, this is going to get eaten by Google Drive. This is going to get eaten by, you know, Microsoft OneDrive. And it hasn't really happened. Dropbox is just so much better at that core problem. you have any lessons about technology and startups from that phenomenon of Dropbox just just continuing to, to crush that category? Well, I think it's actually very applicable to Cadre as well, because in my opinion, the reason why that happened was because of focus. Because Dropbox knew that, like Google has this infinite ATM machine that is called Google Search that can print cash, and they don't really need to focus that much on the this, the data sharing and the file sharing uh, part of their infrastructure. When for Dropbox, it was the only way of doing things. And same for Cadre, we are the platform for individuals to invest in alternative assets, and then the, that's the only thing we do. And that's why... I believe that we can win, even though there are way bigger players in this market, just because we were able and are able to focus on uh, on the task that we're solving. Yeah. And, and the thing is, like, you know, you can look at Google and say, but, well, you know, Google has expanded into all these other products and like, all these other products at Google are great. But when you think about the real cash cow of Google, it is kind of one core product that is that that delivers the most cash. So it's like, you know, in terms of cash, it has been rewarding for Google to focus on its core competency, even though if you zoom out, it looks like Google is doing a ton of different things. Focus 
in terms of the uh, financial health of a business just seems seems to, to that rule seems to carry over even to a company that seems as expansive as Google. Yeah. And at Cadre, as you build technology for alternative investments, alternative investments that's a b- much broader category than real estate. So real estate is an example of an alternative investment. What are some other alternative investments that might make sense for Cadre to get into? Well, the world is very vast in this in, in this field, and obviously it could be infrastructure, things like that, or you know, natural resources. I don't think we have clear knowledge of what is the next thing and the next big pillar for us right now because we're so focused on making sure that our commercial real estate p- pillar is completely automated and uh, scalable. But there is, again, as I've mentioned, there is a variety of, of different alternatives that we can open up in the future. There's a lot of real estate innovation today, although, as we said before, that the, the vast majority of real estate transactions remain kind of caught in, in the past. But you do have these companies like Open Door or Cadre or Airbnb or Redfin, and they're making progress. How do you think real estate will look in 10 years? Well, I think it's going to be very different from what we have right now. Uh, the analogy that I like to make is it's the same way as uh, taxi evolved over the last 10 years from you know, not being able to call a cab in a city that is not New York and to the ability to get your car within two minutes and just go wherever you want. Right. So I feel like we're going to achieve the same results where individuals like on our side, individuals would be able to invest in uh, commercial real estate almost automatically and have their investment in diversified portfolios without having through uh, jumping through the hoops of the investment process. And what are some downstream effects of this? Like, do you think we'll see more buildings getting built or just more real estate transactions, period? more people invested in real estate? What's going to change because of these new technology companies? Well, I think it's it's a little further than that because you're basically, I think that the, uh, what we want to change is the way how people preserve their wealth. Because if you think about that, we are automating things that were only accessible to ultra reach before. And, you know, individual regular folks, they, they were not able to preserve their wealth the same way. And our goal is to allow them to do that. So like if you are an individual and say you're making $200,000 a year, you're a credited investor, your options to the date are public stock market bonds, maybe an investment account with your bank and like 401k, but obviously no access to direct commercial real estate or any sort of alternative investments. And that's what we're trying to change. And we're trying to give people this opportunity to have a stable financial future. So in that sense, I think that what can get changed is the the way how people preserve their wealth. Let's talk about your managerial role so you're the head of engineering. What does that mean? How does that compare to roles like VP of engineering or CTO or engineering manager? What does head of engineering entail? Well, I don't actually like know what the caveats of the role of CTO versus VP versus head of engineering is because uh, typically companies are just putting the different titles on the same role. But my day-to-day is basically being an advocate for our engineering team 
and making sure that everyone on the engineering team is happy and everything gets done. So we are delivering on the promises to the business part and the product part of our organization. We are innovating. We're keeping a very low level of technical debt. And at the same time, everyone on the engineering team actually feels fulfilled and they feel challenged and they feel that they belong in in our company. How do you maintain that? Because there must be work that nobody wants to do. How do you maintain happiness when you have to assign some tasks to people that nobody wants to do? Well, again, it's I think it's the matter of motivating them to do this job because if you just, you know, if you package it as though it's just, you know, some busy work, obviously nobody would be excited about that, but if you're telling folks that this is the technical debt that will eventually make us less flexible, make us less agile, people generally tend to enjoy this kind of cleanups and this kind of process. And if you are you you found yourself in the position where majority of your engineers is working on something boring and something not challenging, it probably means that as engineering organization you are doing something really really wrong. Hmm. What about hiring? How much of your time do you spend on hiring? I want to say 15% of my time. I typically spend on uh, either reaching out to candidates or interviewing candidates or working on the processes around the recruiting in the company. And do you have any... uh... I mean, this recruiting is is one of those areas where everybody just feels like they're doing it wrong. Everybody feels so inadequate, I, I think. At least most of the people I talk to, they're just like, we just cannot get enough engineers. We can't figure out how to do hiring right. Have you learned anything about recruiting that you can share? Sure. I think that the most important is repeatability and ability to create a good experience for candidates. And then if you have, like, for example, Cadre has an amazing team of sourcers who are very knowledgeable in various, you know, aspects of software engineering. So they understand what kind of profiles we need to be reaching out for. As long as you have all the necessary pipes in place to make sure that candidates' experience is seamless, their interview process is seamless, and you have a very clear, objective way of vetting candidates throughout the engin- uh, throughout the interview process rather i think that uh, hiring is not really a big issue obviously it's harder to hire engineers when you are a smaller startup especially a company without a very you know flashy tech name obviously i think that you know companies like facebook or google have way less trouble attracting people and making people to apply uh, through their websites but Other than that, I mean, we're compensating having an amazing sourcing team. One thing I heard from an interview with a Stripe executive was that at Stripe, the interview process consists of interview questions that are designed to look like the job that they are hiring somebody for. So rather than these random whiteboard questions about how to reverse a string or how to make a hash map or something. They'll ask questions about fraud and risk or, you know, design a payments API, something like that. Do you have any uh, any unique interview processes that, that you can share? Yeah, so our interview process is somehow similar to that. We do have a phone screening interview where we're just making sure that a candidate is actually capable of 
you know, writing software understands the uh, fundamentals of, you know, algorithms and, you know, data structures and things like that. But then once we bring Canada on site, we actually give them a laptop during the interview. Uh, and we have two coding sessions where they're being faced with somehow life, you know, application uh, issues, not necessarily the application that Cadre serves, but more applied to real life problems. And then one of the sessions is for them to architect and design the system. And it's based on their strength. So if we're interviewing a front end engineer, it would be like design this complex front end. If we're interviewing an infrastructure engineer, we could be asking a question to design a big data storage. And another part of the interview is is to talk to one of our product managers around their experience working in a very complicated projects from the organizational standpoint. So we can understand how engineers that we're interviewing interact with designers, how they interact with product managers, how they interact with business owners, and things like that. So we've talked in, in detail about the simplicity of the software architecture as it stands today. I think there will be a point in your future where things are going to get more complicated. You're going to have some more complicated models you're going to build. You're going to probably have to use some multiple databases or get to at least a more complex data infrastructure. Are you starting to see on the horizon when that's going to happen or what you're going to need to do to expand the platform? It's really hard to predict. We're trying to be ahead of this, and there are some indicators that we can measure. So, for example, if all of a sudden our deployment process becomes painful, it's a good indicator that something is not going right in our infrastructure. Or if we start encountering more and more errors, or if we are compromising the durability and things like that, and we are continuously measuring things like that, like, you know, how much time it takes us to do the full deployment, how many issues we encounter during it, and so on and so forth. So I cannot predict exactly when it's going to happen, but we're going to see the signs of that way, way before uh, we actually need to make adjustments to the system. And also, there are two different types of complexity. One complexity that can come with the load and the increased number of customers and the other one that can come with the increased number of engineers, right? So if you all of a sudden need to cater your infrastructure to 200 engineers who are working on the features at the same time, it's very different from doing the same work for 25 engineers. So we're trying to predict our headcount as well. Okay, well, Leonid, it's been really fun talking to you about Cadre in the present tense and in the future tense. I look forward to hearing more about the company. Awesome. Thank you so much. Wow.